Hi there, and thanks for joining us. You're listening to Dog Logical, a podcast by R Plus Dogs. I'm Renee Rhodes, a dog behavior consultant, the owner of R Plus Dogs, and a self-professed dog nerd. Along with my friend and colleague, Cassie Dixon, we host this podcast aimed at dog guardians to give you tips, tricks, and bust pesky myths about your dog and their behavior. So if you want to learn how to be more dog logical, you're in the right place. Now let's dive into this week's episode. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Dog Logical Podcast. It's Renee here with Cassie. Hello. So how has your week been, Cassie? <laughs> oh my goodness. It's it's been a bit of a week actually. I got a really um great surprising uh letter in the mail on uh Thursday or Friday, right before I left for a long weekend from a client that I really wasn't expecting to get. Um, I helped a client pro bono not too long ago with a OTR. So um, that's in order to restrain where they um, either, you know, put certain uh, specifics on a dog in the town that they live in or whatever the case may be. So like, Hey, your dog has to be muzzled whenever in public or, mm. you know, your dog cannot be on anything longer than a three foot leash rather than a six foot leash or, yeah. you know, things like that. Um, and it's a dog that came through one of the rescues that I work with and, uh, they were extremely kind as to like, give me a couple of gift cards and sent me this beautiful long letter. And it was one of those, like I was having a week from, heck I guess (laughs) I was having not a great week so at the end of the week it was kind of nice to be brought back to reality where it's like you know this is why we get into this so it's been yeah it's been good and bad but mostly good and yeah it was great it was I was very appreciative of it so it's really interesting fine too but what about you how's your week been yeah, it's been okay. It's been very busy this week. There's a there's a lot of good things good good things I should say going on. So like my dissertation has been approved, which like yay. Um now it's just getting people to do the survey because I'm doing a survey-based dissertation. So um now I'm like checking every so af- um hour or so, like how many people have done my survey. Um, but yeah, really excited about that. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's just been super busy, which is always a plus. I was gonna say, based on what you know you just said, I don't think people really maybe they do, maybe they don't, but I'm not sure people realize how appreciative we are when they're just like the little things like like a card or like you know as you know I get like messages from people I've never met I've never interacted with on social media who say you know oh thank you so much for your content or thank you for posting about such and such like it really helped me um and I just, I, I, I'm a bit of a sado. I screenshot all of those and then I save them so that when I'm having a day, which, you know, would have been like the day that you were originally having, I will go back and I will read through them because I'm just like remembering why I do it. So like, I always think of that yeah. Homer Simpson episode where, um, he has his, like, you know, he works at the, um, Factory, I can't remember nuclear what plant. Yeah, nuclear plant. And he has up on the board where he's put all the pictures of Maggie and it says, um, like, do it for her. And oh, yeah. Like, 
I'm always like that goes into my mind every single time I think of things like that because I'm like, do it for the dogs. <laughs> yeah, and the people oh and the people, of course. But like, yeah, do it for the dogs and people. That's that is too cute. I love that. <laughs> I love that so much. Well, I figure um, um, we can maybe possibly just ask the exact same question um, of our wonderful guest we have here today. We have Simone yes. Mueller. Um, and please correct me if I'm pronouncing that in, incorrectly, because I'm probably pretty positive I am. But Simone is uh, part, well, part of, she created Predation Substitute Training. So we have her here to kind of chat on things. How's, uh, how's your week been, Simone? Hi, Cassie. Hi, Renee. Um, yeah, my week has been quite good so far. The weather is nice in Germany. It's holiday time and I'm pretty relaxed because in the summer, most of my clients are on holiday and I don't have so much to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been, uh, yeah, it's like a vacation at the moment. <laughs> God, that's so good though. Yeah. It's good to, it's good to have a little bit of a reprieve from clients, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so time to time. Simone, tell us a little bit, we already kind of touched on it or Cassie, you know, touched on it when she um, introduced you, but can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what you do and maybe kind of how you got started? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm Simone. I'm from Germany. I am a dog trainer and dog behavior consultant, and I specialize in predation or anti-predation training. And um, yeah, this is what I basically do. So um, I help people with dogs that have a high prey drive. And uh, yeah, this originally became my <laughs> my specialty, my specialty after I had a dog that was quite prey driven um, a couple of years ago where, when it all started. Um, my first dog, Malinka, was, um, yeah, she... She really loved to hunt and she often ran off into the woods searching for wildlife and searching for rabbits and deer that she could chase. And I was really desperate in the beginning because I didn't know what to do with her and how to handle this behavior. And um, yeah, this is when I first came uh, across the force-free anti-predation protocols that had developed in Germany during that time, because um, about 10 years ago, e-collars were banned in Germany and then dog trainers had to come up with more creative ideas to stop their dogs from from hunting. That's so interesting. Yeah. I've always had this like, I don't know, I'm a, um, wow, I was, words aren't even coming to me. I was going to say that I'm a terminology nerd, um, but apparently I can't even use words appropriately today. Um, <laughs> but usually I have like, I have this conversation a lot with like colleagues and clients and things like that, because I'm such a terminology nerd. I like to ensure I'm always using the appropriate terminology. Um, mainly just because it bothers me when I don't, because I don't ever want to be misunderstood by the use of incorrect terms. So I always have this kind of conversation when it comes to predation, especially with colleagues and clients, um, the difference between prey drive and predatory drift. And I've even had a lot of like colleagues, just dog trainer colleagues, because like, you know, we are, the three of us here are all behavior consultants, but I work with several dog trainers that do kind of work underneath me in behavior, but they are trainers. So we've had this kind of conversation before that the difference between predatory drift and prey drive. And do you think you can maybe kind of go over that a little bit? Like, hopefully we all land on sort of the same understanding, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So prey drive is what uh, 
yeah, colloquially um, is used in everyday life, but uh, the the drive theory is a little bit outdated. So I rather use the word um, prey motivation or predatory motivation, that the dog has the motivation to go for a hunt and to search for wildlife and chase and what all belongs to this. Um, predatory drift, on the other hand, is something different. It's uh, when the dog mistakes, um, for example, another dog or a child um, for prey. And uh, this is something that can happen and this often has a very bad outcome, but it's not real predation. Um, so when we talk about um, your dog chasing off after a deer or after a rabbit, this is rather predation or um, the predatory motor pattern that happens in this very moment that the dog goes through. We can maybe talk about this in a, in a second. Um, yeah, so predatory drift is rather the, the mistaken um, predation on another dog or a kid or some um yeah what what actually wasn't meant to be hunted yes <laughs> yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay perfect that's typically how I like to explain it as well I kind of say basically predatory drift occurs when a dog gets that over arousal and drifts into the predatory sequence with yes, something that exactly. maybe, you know, like a squeaky toy might create predatory drift in some dogs or a child screaming or, you know, frantic behaviors and movements and things like that. So that yeah. is perfect. I love that so much. Yeah. I think most of the time when predatory drift happens is when dogs play with each other. And uh, for example, a smaller dog is uh, the prey <laughs> and they they play and the arousal gets built up and higher and higher and suddenly it all changes and it's not a game anymore this is the typical um yeah predatory drift you also find that um because a lot of these behaviors we try to stifle out of dogs or suppress out of dogs do you find that it's also from a lack of meeting the dog's needs. So say if you have a dog who maybe has been bred, um, I know I have a Whippet Cross Border Collie and he does enjoy <laughs> kind of, you know, that eye stalk and, and chasing of things. Um, but I have outlets for him to be able to do that behavior. Whereas you might have someone who is trying to suppress that behavior or cut that behavior off. Do you find that that can also be an occurrence for that predatory drift? Um, oh, all the time. I think predation is so often stifled and cut off and uh, suppressed. And because it is it is something that is dangerous and that we humans cannot handle very well when our dogs um, start to chase and we don't have control over them anymore and they disappear on the horizon and we don't know, are they going to hit by a car or are they going to be shot by a hunter or a farmer or all all the things that can happen to them, we are so worried um, when we can't see them anymore and they are gone for about 10 minutes or even an hour or something. This is why people are terrified of um, predation in dogs because it's something they can't handle and they can't control. And uh, yeah, it is uh, suppressed all the time and all the um, traditional approaches that we have for predation are to suppress the chase. Um, I think most of the time when people talk about predation, they mean chase, um, even though there is much more to predation than just the chase. But uh, this is what we can see and what yeah, we are afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, would you like to talk us kind of through when you just said that there's more to that? Um, are you talking about the predatory sequence or 
Yeah, sure, exactly. The predatory sequence, because um, we have to imagine predation like a ladder. And once the dog has entered the first step of the ladder, he is really likely to step on the next one and the next one, and it all goes by themselves. So it proceeds, um, how to say that in English, it's it's intrinsically um, reinforcing for our dogs to, to mm -hmm. go from one step to the next. So they slide into each other. And once they started, it's very hard to interrupt. And it all starts normally with uh, scanning the environment. So maybe you know this from your own dog that when you come outside of a woodland into a field or you reach the top of a hill, your dog suddenly stops to look around. And um, dogs can scan the environment for possible prey either by looking around or by sniffing the ground or by air scenting. They are basically searching, is there something around that I want to have um, in terms of um, prey. <laughs> um, and once they see something, then they go into a stalk, which is that the body language changes. It all goes a little bit like more, more arrow shaped and more focused on this one particular um, animal. And then they creep forward. They start to bridge the gap between themselves and the other animal um, because um, prey animals are often quite fast. For example, deer have very long legs. And uh, this is for a reason because um, the wolves are not that fast. So evolution has um, yeah, created um, a kind of game who is faster. And um, they try to reach the uh, or to, to bridge the gap as far as they can to um, get as close to the other animal as possible. And when they are positive, okay, now I can get it. Or if the other man animal realized, oh gosh, there is a hunter, <laughs> um, um, a wolf approaching, then they go into the chase. And um, if the dog or the wolf or whatever is successful, then they grab bite and they shake the animal and they kill it. And then they start to dissect and um, eat it. And then the predatory motor pattern, that's what it's called, has come to an end. So the end of the ladder is reached. Um, yeah, our dogs mm, do not normally do not go through the whole ladder anymore. So, for example, you, Renee, mentioned your border collie. Um, he was bred to stalk and to chase. Um, the herding behavior is a kind of chasing behavior. And uh, there it should normally stop because we don't want um, a herding dog or a sheep dog to grab and kill the sheep and dissect and eat them. That's uh, nothing that the human wants. So we have highlighted some parts of the predatory motor pattern and we have bred out um, other parts that we don't want to. Yeah, it's also, I mean, it's beautiful to me. And I think sometimes people think I'm a little strange for um, advocating, but it's when Nero or even I have a German Shepherd, so he doesn't play exactly the same way as Nero does with, with toys, but seeing him, you know, kind of, um, he'll do kind of like the, the bite kill. So like he'll bite and then bite and then bite and bite on a toy and then he'll shake it and he'll throw it up in the air and then he'll go and pounce and then bite it again. And it always brings me <laughs> so much joy, but obviously I know, you know <laughs> what exactly he might be doing if that was a real animal. Thankfully it's just a, you know, a squeaky quail or whatever, but it's, I find that very invigorating to watch him 
doing those sort of, you know, behaviors, knowing full well that if that was a real animal, that I would probably be horrified. Um, (laughs) But it's so interesting to watch. And we often, I mean, he has the ability to safely chase rabbits and he's never caught a single rabbit. Um, Squirrels he finds very interesting as well. But I, I, yeah, I don't think if he actually caught one that he would know what to do with it. Um, Because just knowing him and seeing him, and he's 11 almost, and the way that he acts with toys and the way that, you know, he isn't fully dedicated to kind of going for a squirrel, like the squirrel goes up the tree and he's like, ah, whatever, that's too much effort for me. (laughs) Um, But it's, yeah, it's really interesting. And also getting people to do enrichment-based activities like that. So like, you know, plucking of whole animals. So they have, you know, they've had quills in the past. They have squirrels, um, you know, I've given them kind of, I suppose, synthetic things that they can kind of destroy and pluck. And it's just so, it's so nice to watch them doing those behaviors. Yeah, yeah, it's really something that they were made to do and meant to do. And it gives them so much satisfaction to to perform these behaviors because they do not know that we live in a world where it's not appropriate to kill uh, a rabbit or the neighbor's the neighbor's cat or something. Yes. But, um, yeah. So they still have these um, intrinsic needs, and uh, we can give them an outlet through substitution. So it's, it doesn't have to be the real stuff. Um, it can be a paper bag stuffed with treats that they can rip apart and kill and shake and eat. And yeah, it makes them happy too. Yeah. Now he, yeah. The, the, the quail has taken quite a beating, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's too funny. So with all of this stuff, we're kind of talking about, you know, why people may choose to do predation substitute training. So a lot of the time it's because we do have, well, I'm sure in in Germany, you do a lot of off-leash stuff with your dogs because you're more countryside based on my knowledge of where you live. Um, Yeah. But like here, here in Canada, or I'm sure even where you are, Renee, in England, like you're not on that much of a countryside or a ton of property. Or for me, like I, I'm in a subdivision. I have homes all around me. um, And I work with a lot of dogs in, uh, you know, like downtown Toronto. So really people who might look into this predation substitute training or, you know, whatever might be looking at that because they get yanked off their feet by a dog the moment they walk out the door because they're on leash and they they need to chase every squirrel in the neighborhood or you know whatever whatever and we end up with these behavior patterns that we never really wanted to create in the first place or reinforce in the first place but they end up being these chains that we kind of can't get rid of and then at that point people are looking to try to change that like how do we fix this how do we you know all of those questions that kick around for people. And a lot of the time, a, a lot of people had are, have already tried some type of suppression by teaching the dog that it's wrong in some way or another, but not necessarily in a way that actively removes the parts of the predation sequence that we want to kind of get rid of so that that walk for us is a lot easier, right? I feel like that yeah. was a really long explanation of why people <laughs> might come and do that, but... 
I was just thinking about the the question. I I, I appreciate what you say, and I I can uh, yeah I can say that it's all true from my perspective. But what was the question again here? <laughs> yeah. So like <laughs> when people come to you, look like the reason a lot of people are looking to remove this predation sequence and to help. Yeah is so that, you know, those walks are a lot nicer. We don't have those accidental, like, you know, charging and grabbing of animals or whatever the case may be. So what, I guess really the question I, we kind of, I already answered it, but the question more for is for me is like, how do, how do you start? What does that look like? Um, yeah. Okay. Or, you know, yeah. Well, yeah. As you said before, I live in a rather rural area, but also we have, uh, yeah, <laughs> big cities here and, yeah. um, it's not it's not a, a program or a training program that is built for urban environment to be honest so um in an urban environment what you the most um or the the, the trouble that people have is that triggers turn up quickly and uh, suddenly and very um near very close to them so for example a cat running be from behind the car directly in front of them or um, a squirrel directly in front of you going up a tree um, or dogs that hunt um, motorbikes or stuff like that or cars. And uh, this is not the type of training that uh, can be tackled with predation substitute training. So predation substitute training is rather um, for people who walk their dogs um, in, 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 in woodland or in fields, open fields, and they come across wildlife. So deer, rabbits, um, boars, um, yeah, animals like that. And this is where um, the focus lies here. And this is where it works best. Um, yeah, so what do we start with? Um, I think that the, the biggest difference or when people come to me, they say, yeah, my dog chases. So this is the the, the, the part of the predation uh, of the predatory motor pattern that bothers them most. And um, we have to look at the whole predatory motor pattern because as I said before, predation starts so much before the chase and uh, people are often distracted on their phones or uh, they, um, yeah, they, they are thinking and uh, walking and are relaxed. And for them, it's quite an, an joyful thing to go out with their dogs. So they do not pay attention and they only realize, oh my God, my dog is chasing when the dog is already gone. Um, so when you have a dog with a big prey drive, you always have to have one eye on your dog and you have to realize when predation starts and this happens before the chase. And so then you still have a foot or then you still have time to get a foot in the door. And this is where we start. So um, I basically educate people on what predation is and when it starts and what they can do before the dog goes into a full blown chase. Um, then, for example, we have a look at um, prevention. So does the dog run around like a maniac in the bushes all the time? Because then he is really likely to stumble across something that is huntable. <laughs> um, so we teach the dog to stay on a path. We teach the dog to stay in contact with their owner by check-ins from now and then by keeping a parameter around the owner so that uh, we do not have the high risk of stumbling across wildlife because the dog is so far gone and so out of control. 
And uh, this is the first, I think, the most important part where we start. And sometimes this is already enough. So we, we teach dog owners the, the prevention measures and then we teach them a recall for an emergency. And then a lot of dog owners are already happy and uh, problem solved. <laughs> um, in case it's not, and we have um, a dog with a high um, predatory motivation, for example, a gun dog breed that was really bred to perform um, uh, predatory behavior, or for example, we have a dog with a, with a very long learning history. So they have practiced predatory behavior uh, for about years or um, yeah, then we have to teach them more components of the predation substitute training. For example, we have to give them uh, tools at hand that they can use when they um, come across wildlife. So for example, when there is a deer, what can they do in the situation? What alternative behavior can the dog learn instead of chasing off immediately? And uh, then, of course, when we ask the dog to stay calm around wildlife and pull themselves together and not run off, it takes a lot of impulse control for the dog. So we need to give them an outlet in an, um, when we are not in, in the situation when there is wildlife around. So we have to play games with this dog that uh, fulfill their needs so that they can have all this uh, energy out and they can do something that they originally want, but they didn't do it because we taught them not to. Yeah, that's great. It, it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I feel as though, you know, any attempt to implement um, this type of training in an urban environment is going to be extremely difficult. You'd have to have it a is. really high reinforcement history to yeah. transfer it to an urban area or, you know, especially if there are like tons of stimulus in that area, right? Like just tons of squirrels or, you know, tons of other dogs or tons of exactly. deer for like, honestly, I have deer like you would not believe near me because I'm right near a ravine. And I think what kind of comes to mind the most for this is, I don't know if either of you may have seen this, but I, I always kind of giggle really hard, which I probably shouldn't, but I do. It's a video of two Huskies pulling a bicycle or a sled or something down a trail. Um, and all of a sudden a deer or fox like darts across the trail and the two Huskies just dart right into the woods after it person on the bike be damned. Like it's, it's actually quite funny, but I really hope that person was okay. For what? Yeah, I've never <laughs> seen that. Oh, you seen haven't? That oh my goodness. No, I haven't seen that one. Oh, if I come across it again, I will definitely send it to you. It's like, I'm literally, cause I'm just, you just, you're watching it. You're like, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Something's going to, and then they're like gone into the woods. And it's just like, oh no, I can't uh -oh. imagine. They're literally <laughs> oh, wow. attached to their human. I don't like, that would be so bad, you know, but it's one of those things, right? Like if you have that type of dog or you do like, I know I do a lot of backwoods camping. Um, so I do a lot of like, I take my canoe into the middle of the woods. I, you know, I canoe three, four lakes in, we camp out there and we see moose and we see deer and we see muskrats and we see, you know, literally a little bit of everything. So like my dog also happens to be Aussie lab and hound mix. So he not only has herding in there, but he has gun dog in there and he has scenting in there, like all of those things. And you best believe those are the best traits he got from each one of those breeds. <laughs> so oh, he was well. super difficult as a puppy to kind of really, 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 really reinforce that, especially living in a more, at the time when he was a puppy, I was in a little more 
rural of an area, but now I'm much more urban. And now he like, he doesn't even recognize a deer. He'll see a deer 20 feet away in the woods and he won't even bat an eyelash. He's just like, yeah, cool. Dear mom, don't care. And I'm like, how do you not, how do you not see this? And he's like, oh, I do. I do. I just don't care. So it's like, (laughs) you know, clearly this type of training absolutely works. What would you say is typically like kind of walk us through what it looks like for your average client. Cause I know you're, you're, you're rural, right? Um, like what are some of the first things you look at in terms of starting to introduce this training? Um, and like, what, what are the basics, I guess? Mm, yeah. So, um, the very basics, believe it or not, is I look at, um, stress in the dog, um, because so much, um, of predatory behavior isn't actually predatory behavior. It's stress related, um, behavior um sometimes the dog is quite stressed at home because there is background stress going on for example dog is uh, left alone for hours and it's not really comfortable with being left alone or we have a lot of uh, or we have small children in the house and the dog doesn't really have a, a kind of retreat um where he can sleep enough um there is a lot of pain in dogs that is not um th- that the donor the, the dog owners don't know about um and uh, all these stress um, builds up in the dog and then they go out and they have to release all this stress. And how do they do it? They do it with something that feels good to them. So it's like for us indulging in a hobby after a long day at work, a stressful day at work. Um, so they perform behavior that is intrinsically motivating, which means feel good hormones are released into the body. And uh, sometimes for some dogs, when you reduce the stress at home or you give them proper medication so they don't have the pain anymore or the stomach problems or the allergies, then they do not go hunting anymore, at least not um, to such an extent. Um, Yeah, so this is always the very first thing that I do. I insist on clients going to have a full vet check with their dogs and I give them a protocol for um, so that they can um, write down their um, everyday life and what the dog does and what uh, what they do with the dog, how many hobbies like agility and man training and whatever the dog has <laughs> to perform <laughs> over the, the week. And then we look at stress reduction. And sometimes the problem is already solved. Um, yeah. Uh, if it's not, if it's real predation and real predatory behavior, then we start with these four components that I just mentioned. So we start to implement um, preventive measures. Um, we start with the tools that um, we use in the situation as an alternative behavior. We start with certain games that fit the dog's breed or the dog's um yeah, what he especially likes. If it's a mixed breed and you can't tell what's uh, in the dog, so we we just yeah give it a try, what he likes um, most. And then, of course, we establish a solid recall for emergencies. So when predation happens, maybe the deer was too close and the dog was not able to, to stop himself, then we need a solid recall in place. So we always work on four components. And this is really not something that you do in one session. <laughs> so um, it's really like um, like a life learning. Uh, what is what's it called in English? So if you if you learn for life, um, your whole life it goes on. Um, it's not something that is ever finished. <laughs> it's a process that the people have to have to be willing to enter. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's an extremely valid point that you mentioned um, when you were talking about stress, but also pain, because a lot of people I find don't know that dogs will work through pain. If your dog is in pain, there may be very minor symptoms. There might be no symptoms at all that your dog is in pain. So that especially being ruled out in cases, because I've, I've had clients where maybe the dog is, um, I primarily deal with like fear and reactivity, aggression, those kind of things. And so the dog is going, you know, out um, a lot and maybe they're kind of hiking or, you know, other kind of things. And they're saying, no, no, they hike just fine. You know, there's nothing wrong. Um, and I'll still, you know, maybe sometimes it takes a little bit of time if we start working on behavior modification, but I always like to rule out any sort of veterinary concerns before we start working so that there's nothing niggling but so many times people will say that to me, like, no, he does this or he does that, or he's really active. He plays perfectly fine. It's like, mm, there's just, you know, there's something that's missing from this. And mm-hmm. I have insisted a few times and there's been quite a few times where we've gone back and yeah, there is, there is a pain element there. Um, and dog acts, you know, for lack of a better label, like a lunatic. Um, and <laughs> you know, we, we have that. So yeah, I think that's an, cause you know, you would maybe look at a dog in your situation who is hunting, who is, you know, trekking animals for intensity for miles, you know, length and look at that dog and say, no way it's that dog in pain, but they absolutely will work through it. Yeah, exactly. Um, there are especially what comes into my mind now is that, uh, I have a lot of, oh, Quite a lot of dogs in training that uh, extensively dig for mice. Whenever they are out on a meadow, you 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 can't you cannot reach them anymore. It's like they are whoom into the mouse hole. And when I have this excessive digging, um, then I'm always like, oh, you should go and have your dog um, checked out for pain, because um, what the dog is doing here is that. It, it can be a kind of self-medication because, um, as we said before, um, predatory behavior is intrinsically motivating or intrinsically reinforcing. So there are um, dopamine is released into the body and dopamine is like doing drugs for us humans. So mm. um, we want to repeat this um, this emotion that we have when we yeah, this, um, this trip, we're like on a trip. And this is the same with dogs. So it can be a kind of self-medication. So they want to give themselves a shot of natural painkillers that they can release with their own body. And um, yeah, we really have to look out for this. It's not a sign that everything is okay if your dog is very active and indulging in predatory behavior. It could be the opposite. It could. No, it should be ruled out in the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Cassie and I have definitely talked about that in the past where, you know, if we're not getting that veterinary internal examination, being sure that they're, you know, looking, not even looking for something specific most of the time, but just maybe having that blood work, having that kind of ortho check to make sure, even if there's something, you know, even an old injury, those things can start to flare up. You can start to have arthritis, um, you know, gut issues. I think a lot of times dogs are oh, not yeah. 
being diagnosed with these and they're coming up as, you know, my dog won't eat this or my dog doesn't want their food or even things like acid reflux. I don't think we talk about that, <laughs> that, that often with dogs. Um, and that could be something that, you know, depending on what kind of diet your dog is and what other kind of symptoms they have, it could be something as simple, I suppose, quote unquote, as that, but it's, I mean, it's such a massive, massive part of behavior that we would be very foolish not to go the route and get further investigation or, you know, even a second opinion. Sometimes I will even say to clients, there's, you know, are we sure? <laughs> it doesn't mm-hmm. feel right. You know, maybe yeah. we should get it just and just investigate just a little bit further. Yeah, um, exactly. So, yeah, I'm really glad that you, you mentioned that. Um, something that I, um, wanted to kind of highlight was um, the pre-MAC principle. So I find that it's sometimes hard to explain to clients um, what the pre-MAC principle is. Mm-hmm. Um, would you mind kind of going over the pre-MAC principle and how you would use it um, in the training that you do? Yeah, pre-MAC principle is something very powerful (laughs) and um, yeah I try to use it all the time so especially when I train a recall that is very functional that should be very functional functional means that it works um, in the situation that we need it Um, so for example a lot of people do the mistake they recall their dog and whenever you recall your dog there is something in the environment that you don't want them to check out so it's 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 something that most of the time is quite attractive to your dog so do not go and hunt that squirrel uh, do not run over to that bike come to me instead and uh, it takes a lot of impulse control from the dogs to turn away from this what they originally want to do and come all the way up to you and then when they're finally there you hand them a cookie and the dog is like, oh, wow, that was a reward. <laughs> so <laughs> the dog is making a calculation in, in their head saying, well, I won't do that again because it's not worthwhile. I'd rather go and chase the bike. Um, so here is something that we can uh, use um, Premac principle really well. For example, if you have to recall your dog from something um, that is, uh, or, or you can use um, things in the environment that your dog wants to do as a reward. For example, um, it is safe to send your dog for a swim, for example. So it's nobody gets hurt, so you can use this, um, which means you approach the, the river or the lake, and before your dog enters the water, you ask them for a recall. And the moment they are with you, you just send them into the water as a reward. So you don't need a cookie, you don't need a toy, you don't need anything. You just give them as a reward what they actually want. You can do the same with a squirrel when the squirrel is already up on the tree and the squirrel is safe. So you recall the dog from the squirrel, you give the squirrel a little bit of time to to climb the tree and then you send your dog back and your dog can run around the tree and bark and whatever, but he can have what he actually wanted to have. And this is premac principle that you you use the behavior that the dog originally wants to perform as a reward um, for something else. So for a recall, for example, that he wouldn't want to do in the beginning, <laughs> if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. I often explain this to my clients as um eat your vegetables and then you can have your dessert. So exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a, I think it's a very common one, but it always yeah. makes sense because um, unless you love your vegetables and then 
Um, but yeah, it's, it is quite a powerful thing. And it's actually, when I said before about how I let Nero chase rabbits, that's how I help his recall get better is by asking him, you know, to just come to me. And he's not very far away from me, but he knows the area, which he's, uh, you know, quote unquote, allowed to chase the, (laughs) the rabbits. And, um, yeah, I just, I recall him. He's not very far from me. He comes to me and then immediately I'm like, go ahead. And then he just goes. And it's interesting because, Mm -hmm. you know, getting people to relinquish that control and in a safe way, of course, but it, they almost rebel so strongly because they're like, no, he won't ever come back to me or no. Mm -hmm. And of course you wouldn't, you know, start off maybe as uh, intense as maybe I would, but you know, other things like keeping a long line on a dog. I, I, I don't understand this hesitation by people because there are certain, I mean, both of my dogs have really good recall, but there's certain places that I just won't let them off lead for a various, you know, there's a place that he does like to chase squirrels, but it's fairly close to a road. Um, you know, he went once to chase squirrels. He usually comes back the most it ever takes him is like two recalls. And so I know if he isn't coming back on the first recall and then the second recall and I'm like, okay, we're going back on the lead for a little bit and we have to revisit our recall training. But instead in that area that I know that he most likely does that, instead of doing that battle with him, he just goes on a long line. He can sniff, he can move around, but we just don't go into that area. And when we're far enough away from there, he can go back off lead again. And simple things like that. He's not all, you know, he's not on the lead the whole entire time, but that is just when the way that I manage that situation. So I don't have to worry. We just get past that area and there we go. He's not, he is not a poor recaller just because of that situation. And he also doesn't have any sort of negative effects from not practicing that. Um, when he can be off just a couple, you know, just a couple of minutes later. And I think getting people to see that as not a failure in their dog is sometimes really, really challenging. Do you encounter that if you try to encourage maybe the use of long lines in certain areas with clients? Mm, not so much, to be honest. Most of the clients that come to me have their dogs already in the long line on a long line, but what we rather have the problem is that they do not get rid of it anymore. So mm. it becomes an integral part of their life. And because there is the security that we have with the long line, but I always try to have a look at the dog. And when I see, um, okay, there are some dogs that will never be off leash. We have to be sure about that uh, or clear about that. But there are dogs that can go off leash at least to a certain extent from time to time. And uh, there we need to wean people a little bit of the security that they have with the long line. So for example, I asked my clients to go on their walks and then when the dog has a certain training level, um, maybe they come uh, across an area where normally there is no wildlife. So we can really evaluate um, the risk. And then I encourage them to drop the long line 
for about maybe two minutes, one and a half minute. I don't know. We have to st start with very small steps. And uh, then if they feel really uneasy, they can pick it up again. But I encourage them to make that step. Um, and you don't always have to think about 100% off leash or no time off leash at all. Maybe there is a kind of percentage in between that we can give the dog off leash time, or at least that the long line is on the ground dragging behind the dog. And eventually maybe we feel confident enough to really um, uh, put the dog off leash um, because it is quality of life for the dog when they have a wider range of motion. But uh, yeah, um, so this is more the problem that with people that come to me because their dogs have already been gone for about 15 minutes or something and uh, they do not want to release the long line and get it off their hands. So, yeah. Mm, yeah, I, I completely understand that. I Sometimes I do have the occasional, I mean, I usually have the opposite where somebody mm. <laughs> has already let their dog off and like recall is not my specialty, but I do deal with it quite a lot. And, you know, we're saying, okay, we want to work on recall as well. Um, you know, are you using a long line? And they're like, no, not that much, but <laughs> so we have poor recall and we're not using some sort of safety mechanism. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't work like this. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but even I used to teach group puppy classes and, you know, we would get to the recall part and I would say, you know, how many people have let their dog off already? And most of the class had, and then, you know, how often is your dog coming back to you? And then the hands drop and you're like, how many people Aww. are using a long line? And then, yeah. yeah, no one's like, what's a long line? I'm like, your new best friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For at least one and a half years. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. you have a puppy. <laughs> yeah. My puppies are always on the long line because I don't want them to practice behavior that I do not want. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And I think that's what I was saying before, you know, people see that as some sort of failure. So puppies, as we, you know, know, usually when they're small, they're really good at coming back. They want to, you know, come back to their caregiver yeah. and then those hormones start to kick in. And then they're a little bit like, you know, what's this over here? And so a, a lot of times when it happens in adolescent and I teach an adolescent class as well. And again, it's, you know, reiterating that if your dog is, you know, for all intents and purposes, ignoring you, or they can't pay attention to you, having the long line is not a failure whatsoever. And like I, I say to them all the time, you know, my dogs are really good at recall. I would say coming away from distractions most of the time, like not an issue for them. Um, but there are occasions where I do put them on long lines if I feel, you know, and I go for a, like a one strike you're out. So if you don't come back, like I said, I usually have like a, a you know, three times and then I'm like, mm, okay. So if, if Nero doesn't come back, maybe on the second recall, then I'll go, okay, this is something that we need to kind of tighten up on. And then I might have him back on the long line for, you know, a few days working on tightening up his recall. And then I do the same thing. I drop the line. I'm kind of testing to see how he is. He's good. Okay. Then, you know, I'll take him off. And I tell my clients that because I want them to know that it's not that forever. You know, we have to revisit this. It, it's a, it's a safety element. And if you want your dog to have more freedom, revisiting the long line, revisiting your recall is not a negative at all. You know, no. sometimes we don't, we don't remember everything. If you haven't done something for a while, or like you said about the rewards, 
you know, there has to be that motivation to come back. And if I'm not hot on whatever the motivation is, um, and I let that slack a little bit, you know, that's, that's on me, but I still have to keep my dog safe. Exactly. Yes, you're right. Cassie, do you find with your clients that they're um, a little bit hesitant to maybe put back on long lines or use long lines? Yeah, honestly, yes. Um, I don't know what it is about where I am in Canada, but everybody wants to prove they have a well-trained dog by walking them off leash. Like, I don't understand it. Um, like at all, like, Oh yeah. That's especially, yeah. But like, it's illegal. (laughs) yes, it's illegal everywhere. I don't think it's like, I, I actually don't think there are almost any countries except, you know, those that dogs are outdoor animals that don't live indoors with people. Like it's not like they're considered free roaming. Right. And here in Canada, especially like the leash laws are really not followed. (laughs) Like I don't have like people just do whatever they want. Yeah. And it's, it can be really hard, especially like, um, one of my colleagues has a chihuahua who is like a pound and a half. You know what I mean? And if a dog was dealing with predatory issues and they just decided, oh, I'm going to walk my dog off leash, but you know, I've never seen my dog do anything but chase squirrels. I'm not worried about it. And this dog friendly, tiny chihuahua, not suspecting, you know, it's just a bad scene and people kind of don't care. Um, there's even an area, like, as you know, I work for a humane society as well. And there's an area south thereof that is like a common area for a lot of people to go to. It has leash laws, off-leash dogs are not allowed. And I will regularly be walking dogs with fear and aggression issues through that area. And there's just a ton of off-leash dogs. And I'm like, well, great. Like, obviously there's not a whole lot of other green space and that sort of thing. So it makes it really difficult. And I do find that a lot of clients are, yeah, they're very reluctant to put it back on because to them, it feels like a failure, right? It feels like, well, if I have to have my dog on a leash, they're not well-trained enough. And it's like, yeah, no, that, that isn't really the case. Like I have to eat food to keep my body moving. It doesn't mean I failed at being skinny. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) it's just not a, I know that's a really weird comparison, but it's, it's not really how it works. And I feel like that's part of why I'm, I, I get, I get a little frustrated with it. Um, because it, it definitely does not mean that you have failed as a guardian, that your dog does not do well. Like leashes are important. Leashes are for safety. Um, and then at, like a lot of trainers who will tell you, oh, well, you know, like the use of a electronic collar or something like that would do the same thing. It absolutely doesn't at all in any way, shape or form, I can guarantee you, I have, I have had dogs walk right through electric collars and not mm-hmm. care. Um, like I had a family member who used to have a very large property, um, and a bunch of dogs and they had an electric fence. And I remember walking out of the house and this dog loved me. He was wonderful, like a big doe headed Rottweiler that was just like the friendliest dog on the face of the planet. But he just wanted to be with people wherever they went. And we walked through the electric collar or the like electric fence and just kept walking into the the farmer's fields behind it. And he was like, wait, friends, where are you going? Where are you going? And like ran right through the fence crying the whole time because obviously it hurt. But then it was like right back to you know, well, now I'm not going to go anywhere near that area because it hurt me. So like, good luck coming back or, you know, whatever the case may be. So I think it's, I think it's a difficult, 
you know, a lot of people just aren't on board with that. And people have this need to have their dogs off, which in a city or urban environment just makes no sense at all. Like it's one thing when you're, you know, rural or like, I I love to let my dog off leash on hikes because he absolutely loves to just explore the environment and sniff around and all those things. And I typically leave a long line attached to him so that if I need to, for any safety reason, I can catch up to him. I can get a hold of that leash or whatever. Um, but it's not ever something I do in the city or, you know, so yeah, it's just, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I see that a lot. Um, I wouldn't say, well, that's not true. I don't see it a lot. I see it occasionally where people are walking their dogs just down the street and they're not on any sort of leash. And it, I mean, it always makes me very concerned for the dog because obvious reasons, but also, like you said, if there are other dogs around, um, you know, you can't guarantee that that dog isn't going to run across the street and there might be a car coming or, you know, get up to that dog. And maybe that dog is not comfortable with other dogs. You know, there's lots of different variables. It it doesn't really, it doesn't make sense. It's yeah, it's unfortunate, but I think you, (laughs) you kind of touched on another topic, which Simone brought up very early in the conversation. And that is the use of e-callers. So, um, we know, obviously I know in the UK, there are talks to ban it. Um, and some people think that they are banned in Wales. I think it's just shock callers that are banned in Wales. If I remember correctly, not necessarily vibration callers. Um, but it's interesting to me because, I mean, I'm sure that you get this a lot, Simone, but, the dependency on that tool for recall for safety is highly linkable. So, you know, when people talk about giving their dogs freedom, allowing dogs to be dogs, um, you know, we've even seen sometimes some advertisements which talk in kind of scaremongering of, you know, if you don't have your dog trained for recall, uh, they could get hit by a truck. Um, so it's interesting to me that it's kind of, it's cut off for you. So you can't use that tool, even if you wanted to use it. Um, and how do you kind of feel in the sense of the reliancy and the, um, I suppose the way that people, can fearmonger people into feeling like the e-collar is the only option that they really have if their dogs are chasing any sort of animals or just recall in general? Well, um, I'm quite lucky because we don't have that topic anymore here. Um, people are now used that it's not available. And uh, of course, yeah, I see on the internet all the time. Yeah, but in Germany, some people have it. And yeah, of course, some people have it because you can still buy them. It's a European law that they can be sold, but it's German law that they cannot be put on the dog. So <laughs> it's a little bit contradictory, but that's the law anyway. You can buy it. We have free um, uh, trade between the, 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 the European countries. So you can buy them online, but you cannot use them. And um, luckily, to be honest, most people don't have them. So there are mostly in sports, um, 
traditional sports. Um, people use still use them. It's a kind of clientele that still uses them. But uh, the people that come to my classes, I have never had that conversation, to be honest, because um, for them, for these um, ordinary dog owners, normal dog owners who love their dogs, who just want to be them with them as a family member, it's not in their um, in their minds anymore that there is this tool um occasionally i have people who have trained um with uh, water bottles to spray water on dogs but that's mostly a kind of interrupter so mm. before the dog goes into the chase spraying water but to be honest it's becoming less and less and it's not that we only have four three trainers in germany no no we have um uh, balanced trainers as well quite a lot um but um people I feel that there is a shift in people's minds. Um, they want to have a force-free way to deal with their dogs. It's like um, the way they want they the way they raise their children. They want to treat their dogs as well because they see it as family members, and uh, they make the deliberate decision to work force-free with them. At least that's the people who come to my classes. I, yeah. I'm quite happy awesome. to be honest. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I celebrate that. Good for all of those people. Like, yeah. heck yes. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of now that I've switched to, cause I'm predominantly um, virtual. I think I have like one client in person and I, it's the same for me once I made the switch to virtual and because most of my clients come from social media or word of mouth, they already know how exactly. I train. So I don't have, I don't have those conversations. I mean, even conversations about, you know, just generalized punishment um, are very rare, less so than they were, you know, three, four years ago, even. Yeah. And things like enrichment, when I first started talking about enrichment, <laughs> I think people thought, you know, I had like five heads or something because they were just <laughs> like, what is this? you know, what do you mean? You want me to let my dog like tear something up? And I was like, no, no, <laughs> I swear it's good. Um, yes. so yeah, I definitely feel that there, I agree. There is a shift and it's, it's so invigorating to see it's, you know, I think as well, because I'm a lot on, on social media, I do sometimes get bogged down with, um, seeing a lot of, you know, kind of negativity. Most of the time I just block those. So I don't get them on my feet a lot, but sometimes I feel like it can feel very heavy still. Um, but I definitely think the shift is, is going more towards kindness, which sounds a bit silly to say, cause mm. you know, we, why are we not kind to dogs and why do we have such a hard time, you know, being kind to our dogs, but it's, yeah, I, I welcome that as well. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I feel like I find definitely, especially people who are working with issues with predatory drift or predation sequence issues um, in general, just like their dogs having a high prey drive, they tend to have a harder time, in my experience, not punishing the behavior because they're also so worried that if something happens at the other end of that leash, if their dog does injure another dog or another animal or, you know, all of those things, they're so worried that they feel almost justified in a use of force or punishment in those moments, which also makes it really hard to sometimes get, get that thought and retrain our own brains to move away from that, you know, because you feel like if, if there's no other option, use the thing that's going to work. And it's like, yeah, but there are way better ways to make it work. Yeah. Without that. Right. Yeah. yeah so definitely. 
have you found that as well? I think it's also counterintuitive to recall. If you, you know, rely on your dog coming to you, you know, you want to be, you want to be the kind of fountain of good things. So like if you're Mm. offering those sorts of corrections or that sort of, I want to say attitude, but I, I think you, you know, both know what I mean, but that sort of attitude towards your dog. I mean, why, why should I come back? Like I wouldn't want to come back. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it takes a lot of self-control from the people as well, because yeah. when your dog runs off and you feel so frustrated because, oh gosh, he did it again. And then he comes back and you should be joyful throwing yeah. around. Cookies. <laughs> so I sometimes tell my clients, you can, um, you can use curse words on your, on your dog. You can really be rude with them and, 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 and shout at them, but only in your mind. So you use, um, <laughs> you use a nice wo- voice, but you use the very bad words. Yes. <laughs> so yes. Because they don't actually speak German. They will not understand. They will just hear your voice and it's better than, yeah, than, than, than being, um, shouting at them or something like that. Or, um, if you still have the self-control, just put them on the leash and go on and forget about it. <laughs> but it's yeah. hard. It's so hard because it's, so frustrating you put a lot of effort in this and oh gosh then it happens again (laughs) and I always feel sorry for the people as well because I can totally relate absolutely yeah I used to play the uh, best boy game so I used to take like in and out uh, like in and narrow out together a lot and um, if we were you know recall or something usually recall I would recall them and Lycan's very quick to come back I mean he's um he's definitely like mommy's dog. So he'd be like the first one back. And then I'd say like, Oh, guess who's best boy. Even though I'd be like, Nero hasn't come back yet. Best boy. (laughs) You're the best boy. Oh, aren't you a nice best boy? Um, and so like, that was something that I used to tell my clients as well. You know, even if you're really, really, angry in the moment if you say it like slightly sarcastic what are you doing are you going to thank you um the dog doesn't really know the difference so like you can of course like, yeah you feel yeah. better <laughs> <laughs> exactly and like I think sometimes we we can seem like in the whole you know trying to like trainer behavior because you know that everything's perfect my dogs are perfect they're amazing and yeah I would tell clients like look your dog is gonna, there's gonna be times, like there are times. And definitely, you know, I've shared with Lycan, there were lots of times with Lycan. So, you know, putting on that little, that little voice of like, oh, what did you do? That's not good. No, it's not good. Um, always makes me feel a little bit better. So you gotta fake it till you make it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> best boy oh game goodness. lasted for we don't play best boy game anymore because um yeah they're they're pretty great but that was for I think it was mostly when Lycan was a little bit younger um and I was having some uh repeated kind of stressful events with him so I think my my stress load was very uh very full my stress bucket and so yeah we don't I we haven't played it in a couple of years now which is it's quite interesting I just remembered it then <laughs> um yeah. Which is, I suppose, a good thing, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So you are also a author, Simone, you have two books. Um, I think, was it hunting together that came out first? Yes. And to get together. And then it is rocket recall, which I love the name. It's such a cute name. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those books? 
And what kind of prompted you to um, write them? Mm -hmm. So um, I was in Scotland for three months um, in 2018 doing some uh, kind of practice or internship um, to get some more practical um, experiences after my doctorate education here in Germany. And um, I did this with the Lothorian Dog Services in Scotland, and uh, we had a wonderful time there. Um, But one day I talked to Claire Staines, who is the owner of Lothorian Dog Services, and uh, we talked about predation. And Claire said, well, we positive dog trainers, we we have a solution for anything, um, but not for predation. And I, at that moment, I didn't even know what predation was in, 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 in German. So I only knew the German word for predation. And I was like, what is, what is predation? And she's like, um, yeah, it's hunting behavior. Ah, okay, good. And I said, yeah, but don't you like the, the protocols that are out there? Um, and she was like, what protocols? And then I realized <laughs> that even though it's quite standard in, in Germany to teach um, these force-free protocols um, to dog trainers in dog trainer um, courses, um, it's not out there in the world. And uh, I was really surprised that um, there is only or mainly just the traditional um, approach of recalling the dog. That's the only thing that there is as a solution, a force-free solution. So I thought, okay, um, I can write it in a book. <laughs> and I I never thought that I could write a book, but I did. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was yeah, this was the first one. And then um, because recall is such an integral part of um of the anti-predation protocols. And there is a specific um, method of teaching a recall that um, I have not come across in the English speaking world as well. So um, I wrote a second one about this particular recall that which is called the double recall. It's a method that was developed by a German behaviorist. And uh, yeah, I think it's so useful and so bomb proof to, to teach your dog a recall. Um, it makes so much sense that I think that I wanted to translate this method as well into English. Yeah, that's amazing. That's yeah. Thank you for kind of diving into sure. both of those. Yeah, I I always feel a little bit embarrassed when people say, "Yeah, you developed the program," and I was like, "No, I didn't develop it. I just <laughs> I'm I'm not that genius. I wish I would, but uh, it it wasn't my <laughs> invention or something. I'm just a translator." But uh, yeah, yeah, I really think that it's great though in terms of being able to translate that. I love starting to see that more here. Although, you know, a lot of the things in, you know, in the protocols for predation substitute training and things like that are commonplace in a way, but not all put together, if that exactly. makes sense. Yes. So that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really nice to see that, you know, not only can we create new protocols from ones that are already there and already out there and already being used, but we can really reinforce those ones over time as well. And I think too, like I have, um, quite a few dogs, like, um, because I, I do work at a humane society as well. And, um, we will have quite a few dogs who, oh, they are high prey drive, high prey drive, high prey drive. And it's like, well, not necessarily, there's, you know, like you were mentioning earlier, there's stress involved. There's these other things that are causing what looks like prey drive. So that kind of brings me to a question. What, what would you rule out if that makes sense? So if, 
you know, we, we, we've, we've already said once, like we go through the whole making sure that there's no ailments for the animal currently. You take a look at stressors, you take a look at all of those things. And sometimes you said that that really can change the issues that are going on. So what tells you that it is in fact predatory drive that's creating the issue, I guess it's not an issue, that it's predatory drive behavior that's happening and you're making sure that that's what you're replacing or substituting, right? So like what what makes it predatory drive? Like what are people looking for? What is that it factor, I guess? (laughs) That's a good question. I guess it's mainly... One thing I always look at is, um, is the behavior that the dog shows intrinsically reinforcing for the dog, or does it take a lot of impulse control to hold the dog back? Which means, for example, the dogs who are bred for stalking, for example, Mm -hmm. if we ask them to stalk instead of chase, so they can stalk as long as they want to, but they cannot go into the chase. Um, And this takes them a lot of impulse control then it's a learned behavior. It's not something that comes natural to them. It takes impulse control. It's stressful for them. But then there are other dogs that were bred to do that, for example, sight hounds. And they really go through this training like a breeze. So it's really easy for them because it's come so natural for them. Does that make sense? So um, it's, it's more a kind of yeah, you rule out all the issues that um, I mentioned before, and then you have a look what is left and you start to analyze um, what was that dog originally bred for. And this is the behavior that you start to work with. So it's a kind of gut feeling, basically. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. Hey, you know what? Gut feelings have gotten me through to now. <laughs> like there's so, there's so much of everything we do with dogs that it, it can just be like, yes, absolutely. There's evidence that tells us this is what we're looking for to pull out this behavior or, you know, whatever the case may be. But oftentimes I like, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've been dealing with a dog where people are like, Oh, the dog's like, you know, he, it's just play the dog's fine. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I just have this gut feeling that this is a serious aggression issue. And then as soon as I see something happen, I'm like, yep, this is not just a, you know, they don't have impulse control or whatever, whatever, or even vice versa, where people are like, this dog is seriously aggressive. This is not good. You know, those types of things. And turns out like, nope, they're just really frustrated and highly stressed. And we're trying Mm -hmm. to put them through the same thing over and over and over and hoping for a different result. So gut feelings are a big part of it. I totally appreciate that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to thank you so much for coming on, Simone, and sharing all of this wonderful information um, about predatory substitute training. Um, If you, I suppose, if you could summarize, if it's even possible to summarize, um, what would you say is probably your top maybe three or five tips that you would give to maybe somebody who is struggling with their dog and recall? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So um, first of all, um, I would recommend people to, as you said before, use a long line on their dog when they're not reliable um, yet so that they cannot practice behavior that you do not want to have. <laughs> so, and um, yeah, especially when your dog is young, you should always have a long line on your dog and then you can gradually fade out the long line when they get become more reliable. Another thing that I would avoid here is um, walking with other dogs that are really 
highly motivated to go hunting um, because when your dog has not yet learned to do that, he will definitely have learned that <laughs> after your walk with this uh, other person. So if you have a friend and their dog is hunting a lot and you don't want your dog to learn this from the other dog, you can maybe meet up in a garden, have a coffee together. There are still ways to socialize without going out into um, the woods and um, yeah, have your dog learn things from other dogs that you do not want to. And maybe the third tip that I can give everybody is to look out for environmental reinforcers, things um, that we said earlier when we talked about premac principle. The world is full of reinforcers. So it doesn't always have to be the cookie delivered to the mouth um, because your dog might find that boring. And there are so many people out there who say, well, my dog doesn't eat outside and um, I cannot reward them. And that is not true because every dog has things in the environment that they want to have. They want to have access to or they want to to use in a certain way. And um, yeah, you can use these things for your advantage and you can use them as reinforcers. So for example, your dog wants to dig for a mouse, you ask for a recall, you send them back to dig. Your dog wants to go into water, you recall, you send them into water. Um, this is a way that everybody can use, even owners of dogs that do not have, um, or that do not like to eat when they're out, out there. Yeah, and I think these are my top three tips. <laughs> about yeah, it's probably hard <laughs> to narrow it down so many. Exactly, yeah, right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. Um, so could you tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah, sure. So um, you can find me on uh, Instagram, on Facebook as a Predation Substitute Training, or you can um, visit my website, um, predationsubstitutetraining.com. And uh, yeah, I always love to see people giving me feedback when they have read my books or um, watched a webinar or something like that, that uh, when they play games with their dogs or when they use tools that I teach, um, that they um, tag me in their videos, in their stories, or in their yeah, Facebook feed. And uh, yeah, I, I really love to see that and give a little, It's it, of course, it's not possible to give a large feedback in detail to everybody, but a little encouragement like, um, yeah, <laughs> um, a thumb up or something like this. I, I really love to see that the word is spreading, that there are alternatives out there and that you, you can use um, force free training, even for predation. So help me to spread the word here. Use the hashtag predation substitute training. I really love to see that out. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Amazing. And I know that you have a course coming up. Do you want to tell our listeners about that in case they are really interested in everything they've heard, which of course they would be. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> how, um, how might they go about finding that? Yeah, so the courses are basically two courses. One is for dog owners. Um, we just had the last round um, for this year in uh, August. And uh, it will definitely, uh, there will be another dog owners course, um, which is called Oh Dear, <laughs> by the way. Um, <laughs> I love a good name for a course. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
I had help with that to come up with that. Um, and I really loved the suggestion. So <laughs> yeah, we took that. Um, yeah, there will be another round of Odeer in uh, spring of 2023. And in uh, November, we will start the first instructor course that I do together with a colleague. Um, we are two dog trainers teaching the instructor course for dog professionals. Um, so if you're a dog trainer or a dog behavior consultant and uh, you want to work with clients, um, then you can uh, maybe have a look at the um, instructor course that is going to start in November. And you can find both courses on my website, predationsubstitutetraining.com. Fantastic. Thank you again um, for joining us. It's been a very interesting conversation. And um, yeah, I, I'm thinking I really need to get Rocket Recall because I want to... <laughs> I mean, you can always improve, right? So like, yeah, I, I think that's going to be next on my uh, to purchase list. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, um, Cassie and Renee, for having me and for inviting me to your podcast. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us on the Dog Logical Podcast. And if you appreciate the free content that we put out, like this podcast, leave us a review. After all, positive professionals love positive reinforcement. And if you're looking for an ethical, evidence-based dog professional to work with, we're virtual. Check out rplusdogs.com to see what services we offer. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.